So as you can tell by my limp across the stage here, it has been quite a time at the Hell House. And in the midst of having ankle surgery, most of you know that I also had uh, COVID during that time and had to do a two-week quarantine. And, and I tell you all of that to say this, I have become quite a couch potato, right? Like, I just, I can't do much and I haven't done much. You know what I'm saying? Like, essentially, at my house, I'm just left to, to eat, to sleep, to to watch TV, to read books, and that's about it. And the impact of this is most negatively upon my precious and beautiful wife. There is nothing more emasculating than sitting on the couch while you have this pretty little brunette lady buzzing around trying to take care of everything and take care of you and, and take care of the babies and take care of the house, and you're just sitting there watching BattleBots, you know? That's been my situation over the last several days. Me Megan is cooking and I am consuming. Megan is taking care of the house and I'm reading Corey Tinboom. Megan's looking after the kids and honestly, she's looking after me too. And I'm watching BattleBots on TV. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, honestly, that's really a picture of what the church looks like, isn't it? Too often. That too often, that's the picture of what modern Christians, the lives that they are leading. Th that we come to church and we consume religious products. We consume sermons and music and we look for the production and we go to the church that gives us the one that's most exciting to us. And we're just here consuming religious products. We, we read we read books and we read the Bible and we're, we're consuming the scriptures. And man, it's good. And we're consuming uh, the word. And we're consuming different other books that we, we might read. We're, we're listening. But the truth is, we're not doing very much. We're not doing very much. There's some, there's some that are buzzing around the church and buzzing around the kingdom and buzzing around our community, uh, serving our Lord and advancing his name and advancing his glory. But for too many of us, we're content to be consumers. For too many of us, we're content to be couch potato Christians, couch potato disciples. I want you to notice what it says in our text there in verse 13. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's significant. That here you have the religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the council, and they are anti-Jesus. They have just murdered Jesus, and they are anti the movement of Jesus and the movement of his disciples. But what they recognize as they see the boldness of Peter's witness, as they see the relentlessness of their mission, as they see their, their ongoing pursuit to make Jesus' resurrection known in Israel and known to the world, what it says is that they see this in Peter and John specifically here in our text, and they recognize that these men have been with Jesus. The vision of our church, we state it like this, that it, our, our vision is to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. But you know, we could rephrase that, that our vision is to raise up a generation of Christian believers that the world can recognize as having been with Jesus, that the world can see our witness and the world can see our mission. And the world can see our passion. 
and the world can see our joy, and the world can see our zeal, and the, the world can see the love that we have for each other, and the passion that we have for our Lord, and that the world would recognize us as disciples of Jesus. But, 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 if we consume religious products and never invest in the kingdom, if we are always listening, but we are never speaking, if we are always sitting, but we are never going, we are unrecognizable as disciples of Jesus. We are unrecognizable as disciples of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, I have come to make you fishers of men. And this is the end of all discipleship. This is the aim of all discipleship, that the Lord would make us fishers of men, those who would share in his mission and go to the ends of the earth for his glory and to spread his name with passion and zeal and fervor. So that means that if we're to be recognized as his disciples if we are to be understood as those who follow Jesus, we will join him in his mission. So so our vision, the vision of our church, is to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. But we recognize, man, that that feels nebulous. It feels abstract, perhaps, for us. And so what we've done is we have a, a discipleship process. But you have to take each of these processes and start where you are and take the next step and the next step so that ultimately you are a recognizable disciple of the Lord Jesus. That is, our discipleship process is connect, disciple, go. We understand that first we must connect together. But we, as good as connecting is, and we believe it's the first step, is once you come into the kingdom that you are to connect into the life of a church, connect into the life of a group of believers, a community of believers. But as significant as that is, it's not the end. It's not the end. And, and once you've connected, the next step is to be discipled, to have a brother or a sister in Christ to invest their life in your life and to pour into you, the, to help you grow in Christian maturity, help you grow in your likeness of Jesus. And as important as it is to have someone invest the gospel into your life and disciple it, and we believe it's critical that it can't be skipped, it's not the end goal. That ultimately the end goal is that you would go, that you would go, that you would be connected into the kingdom, that you would be discipled in the kingdom, that you might be sent out for the kingdom. And when you are sent out for the kingdom, that is when you are a recognizable disciple of the Lord Jesus. So with that definition, I ask you, would the world recognize you as someone having been with Jesus? Would the world recognize you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Where we are in our text is really a fascinating place. What has just taken place is you had a a man who was outside the temple complex and he was known throughout the whole community as being someone that was paralyzed. And so he would go outside the temple complex and he would, he would beg. And it says that he was more than 40 years old, more than 40 years paralyzed, so that his reputation was well known. Peter and John have come into the temple complex and they're there so they can tell and teach about the resurrection of Jesus. And as they're there teaching about the resurrection of Jesus, this man comes and he begins to beg them that he would have some some change, some, some gold, some silver that he might be able to go and to care for himself yet another day. He, he is a man that is, that is reduced to mere begging. And, and Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have to give you. 
But what I have, I give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And this man takes up his mat and he begins to walk. And, and he's beside himself and he begins to celebrate and to tell all that are in the temple complex what has just been done. And they recognize him as someone, as the man that they're used to seeing beg, as the man they're used to seeing lay there on the mat, unable to do anything for himself. And so he tells them what happened and great crowds begin to throng upon Peter and John as they want to hear from men who are able to live with such passion and power. Well, this gets the eye of the religious council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. The Sadducees are the primary leaders of the religious council. And the Sadducees, you'll remember that one of the things they're most known for is that they disbelieve the resurrection. And here are men who are not only saying that the resurrection is true, they're saying they have proof that the resurrection is true, that their friend, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus, was one of the ones who has been resurrected. And man, they are upset with them. They begin to get angry with them and they have them arrested. They have them arrested and, and thrown into prison trying to figure out exactly what it is that they're going to do with them. And it's important for us to understand that what upset them so badly was not merely the, these, the presence of these men. It wasn't merely that these men were religious people, that what upset them was the message that these men were sharing. Namely, you can see the message summarized there in verse 12. Which says, and there is no one else, for there, uh, there, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is a scandalous claim. This is a scandalous claim. That there is no other way, there is no other path to salvation except for the Lord Jesus alone. It is a bold and scandalous claim. And it was then and it is right now. We live in a plural, pluralistic society that wants to say that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and that whatever way is good for you, whatever good vibes you're feeling, whatever good life you're living, whatever best life you're finding, that you are free to choose your own path and somehow, somehow, at the end, all of these paths are going to converge into some paradise with some random God. But Christianity claims something different than that. The gospel is something far different from that. The gospel claims that, that all of the paths are not going to converge. In fact, it says that all of the paths, of the rest of the paths of the world, they do converge, but they converge into forming a wide path, a path that leads to destruction. But there is only one path, only one name, only one God by which you can be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that with everything that's in you? With all the fiber in your bones, deep down into the marrow, do you believe that there is only one name under which you might be saved? Because I would propose to you that if you believe the message, if you believe this bold, scandalous message, it changes everything else about your life. It reshapes everything else that you are, it reshapes everything else that you do. What I want us to see this morning really are, are two implications of what it would look like in a life that, that holds it true that there is no other name under heaven by which there is salvation outside of Jesus. The first implication that I want you to see is that we cannot be silent. That we cannot be silent. 
that if we believe that there is no other name by which a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, a child at the school or your, your co-worker at your job place can be saved, then the reality of that is, the implication of that is, is that you can't be quiet. It's important here to understand what brought offense, what, what the Sadducees, what the, the religious council saw as a threat to their way of life. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2 how often speaking comes up, right? As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because, why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in, the, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In fact, if you, we didn't read the passage, but if we would have continued reading, they would have come to the realization they had no real charge against them, but then they would, they would try to intimidate them, and they would intimidate them by what? But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. That what brought offense, what brought threat to the council was not the lives that these men were living. They were not offended, and this is important that you get this, they were not offended by Peter and John because Peter and John were nice guys. They were not offended by Peter and John because Peter and John were good neighbors. They were not offended by Peter and John because Peter and John were handing out coats to the cold and food to the hungry and water to the thirsty. They were not threatened by Peter and John because they were always smiling at work and did what the boss asked them because they lived quiet and dignified lives. They were dignified. They were dignified because of what they said. Because of what they said. Because of what they proclaimed. Because of the message that was on their lips. Because the testimony that was always at the tip of their tongue. Because they were always saying the same message over and over and over again. See, I think, I think we have bought into Charlie Chaplin Christianity. Charlie Chaplin Christianity. There is a heresy out there that says, preach the gospel by all means possible, and if necessary, use words. And I say it's a false teaching because the gospel, brothers and sisters, requires words. You remember Charlie Chaplin, probably most of you have seen a Charlie Chaplin movie at some point or another, and you know that the majority of the Charlie Chaplin movies, or at least the ones that he's famous for, he's silent, right? So, so you're watching this movie and there's all of this activity and there's all of these things that are happening and they're going on and you have romance scenes and you have conflict and you have, you have all this stuff and you're watching it, but there are no words that are being spoken. No, no the, the person, the viewer is responsible for supplying the details, Right? The viewer is responsible for supplying the details to the movie. You're you're watching it visually, but you really aren't getting the insight into their character, the insight into their mind, the insight into what they're saying in the argument. You have to supply that for yourself by, by what you see and by what you watch. And I think this is how most of us hope the world's gonna come to Jesus. That if we can just go to work and be honorable men and women, that if we can just be good neighbors, if we can just occasionally work at soup kitchens, if we can make sure that cold people have coats and hungry people have food and thirsty people have water, if we can just be the friendliest person at work, if we can just be the best employee that our boss has or, or the most reliable colleague that they know, if we can just be a, the, one of the few students at our high school that's not partying all Friday night, that we won't have to say anything 
That people will be able to watch us in our silence, watch us as we attempt to live a good life. And that then they will be able to fill in all of the details. That they will be able to, to fill in all that's going on in our lives so that ultimately it will bring them to Jesus. Per- perhaps if we're especially bold, we hope that it's going to bring them to this question. Maybe they'll watch our lives and observe this question and they're going to come and say, well, how might I inherit eternal life, my friend? But brothers and sisters, this... This is a delusion. This is a delusion. Oh, how Satan wants to silence the church. Oh, how Satan wants to silence your witness. Oh, how, what a win for him when we stop articulating the gospel. You know why it's not true? It's not true because people are spiritually blind. You can live as faithfully as you're able right in front of them by the power of the Holy Spirit, but they can't see it. Ephesians tells us that they're spiritually dead. They're not longing for it, hungering for it, seeking after it. They can't see it. They don't want it. It's what Romans 1 actually says, right? Romans 1 says that the power of God, the presence of God, is clearly perceived in all the things that God has made. That God's presence and God's power, you could walk out the front door of our church and there is all of the evidence proclaiming the handiwork of God that it would call men and women to account. But you know what? We suppress the truth. That truth is there, that truth can be seen, that truth is is proclaiming God's handiwork, God's power, God's majesty, God's sovereignty. And yet we suppress that truth. We pretend as though it's not there. We pretend as though it's not real so that we can live our lives unaccountable to anyone. Charlie Chaplin Christianity, brothers and sisters, is a farce. Hope will not spread through a silent church. Hope will not spread through a silent church. We cannot be silent. We cannot give up Speaking the gospel. If there is only one name under heaven by which men and women might be saved. If there is only one name under heaven by which boys and girls might have the hope of eternal life. We have to say the name. We have to speak the name. We have to declare and proclaim the glories of Christ every opportunity that we get. This is the logic that Paul has in in. Romans chapter 10. Andrew read that as our start with the word passage as we were starting this morning. He says in there, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, I think it's really important that you remember who they are. They are. This is the aimless. This is the hopeless. This is the depressed. This is your kids. This is your friends. This is your neighbors. This is little girls and little boys whose names you don't know that are living on a part of the world that you've never heard of that are waking up every single morning having never heard the name of Jesus Christ. That's who they are. They are your elderly parents. They are the neighbor that you've had a relationship with. They are the people that you drive by on the interstate every single day. They are the ones who are anxious. They are the ones who are trying to build paradise right here. They are the ones that are running on this treadmill, getting loster and loster and loster by the second. And so Paul asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching, speaking the gospel, saying it out loud, who Jesus is, who their Savior is. See, I think what happened, I think what happened is what many of us grew up in a tradition and what we saw were hyper-aggressive evangelists that would go and they would berate people and beat people over the head with the Bible. And they would go and they would say, are you going, are you going to hell? Are you going to hell? And they tried to scare the hell out of everybody. And then we went back behind the scenes and what we found out is that these people that were so aggressive in their evangelism were not nearly as aggressive in their godliness. We're not nearly as aggressive in their faithfulness that they didn't have a fervent passion for Jesus. They didn't have a, a, an intimate relationship with him. They didn't have a joyful walk with him. And so what we said is, is what we said is, I'm tired of hearing people speak the gospel, but not live the gospel. I'm tired of seeing, hearing people speak the gospel and not live the gospel. And as it so often does, the pendulum has swung back the other way. So now what we say is, is I'm going to live the gospel. I'm going to live the gospel. I'm going to live it so that other people can see it faithfully in my life. I'm going to live it so that other people know what I'm about. I'm going to live it so that other people can, can understand that, that I actually believe the things that I proclaim. But we don't speak it. We don't say it. We don't want to be a hypocrite. But we end up not saying anything at all. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we have to bring the pendulum back to the center. That it's not just a lived gospel, it's also a spoken gospel. And when you have a lived gospel paired with a spoken gospel, hope spreads. Hope spreads. You have people living by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, with a passion for God, with a joy for God, who are, who are living best they can. Man, you're not perfect, I get that, but living in a spirit of repentance, living in a spirit of zeal to our Lord. And not only are you living it, but you're there to say, I have found the answer. I have found the hope. I have found the solution. Let me share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you are there, your kids will come to faith in Jesus. Co-workers will come to faith in Jesus. Our community, hope will take over our community. You don't have to go very far around here to find out that we are living surrounded by despair. Can I ask you, when is the last time that you have spoken the gospel to someone? When is the last time that you have spoken the gospel to someone? The truth is, is that if statistics hold up, many of you have never spoken the gospel to someone. Many, uh, the Barna research shows us that the majority of Christians live and die having never led a single person to faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's what makes you recognizable as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that you are a fisher of men, that you are passionate and in love with Jesus, and you have compassion for other people. You have love for other people, and this love for Jesus and this love for others compels you to go forward in faithfulness and to proclaim the gospel to them. There's a great irony here in our text before we go to the second point that I want you to see, though. It says there in verse 14. Now, remember what, what the council is so uh, concerned with 
uh, showing or so concerned with when it comes to Peter and John. They're concerned with their speaking, right? They're, they're concerned that they're always proclaiming and teaching the resurrection of Jesus. And so what they want to do is they want to intimidate them into silence, right? They want to arrest them so that by arresting them, they'll, they'll hopefully shut them up for the, for the long haul. Them and all their little uh, their followers that are hanging out with them, right? Listen to what it says in verse 14. I think this is awesome. I think the fact that the Bible includes things like this is just awesome. It says uh, in verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. <laughs> Imagine, man, there's a guy there. They're all been out of shape about the resurrection. They're all been out of shape about the, the we have this power in Jesus that we can boldly proclaim. We, can, we have hope for the world. And they're trying to refute it. They're trying to refute it. They're trying to refute it. Except, except, except there is a 40-year paralyzed man standing right in their midst that has been delivered, helped, healed by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And so here they are trying to intimidate the Peter and John, the apostles, into silence. And what happens is Jesus ends up silencing them. See, their culture said to them, shut up and you won't be arrested. Our culture says to us, shut up and you won't be shamed. You won't be humiliated. You won't have to pay the social costs. But Jesus says, follow me, obey me, be fishers of men, and I will silence every single foe. In fact, every Sadducee, every Pharisee, every member of the Sanhedrin, everyone who comes against the church in this day will bow at the feet of Jesus. And they will not be silent, for they will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let us go and speak the gospel. Let us go and speak the gospel. One other implication that I want us to see this morning is that we must not stop. We must not stop. We cannot be silent, and we must not stop. Now, you'll notice there that it says that uh, Peter is being examined, right? Uh, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today... So, so they've, what's happened is, is they've, they've put Peter and John under the microscope, and Peter's kind of the mouthpiece. And he begins to, to speak up on their behalf, and there's Peter being examined. And so Peter says, well, that's okay. I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to come under the crosshairs. So, so listen to how Peter resigned. How would you, by the way, respond to an examination by men who can determine your life and death? How would you respond? Look at how Peter responds. He says, let it be known to all all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Do you, do you see something here? Persecution is meant, to, is meant to stop the church, isn't it? Persecution, public shame, arrest, being arrested, being, being called to examination before a very intimidating council that might kill me. All of these things are intended to to stop the church. The the thought of your boss turning on you. The thought of having to live beside your neighbor and your neighbor, they're always being tensioned because you shared the gospel with him. The the thought of, of going to school and being the outcast of the social circle. 
These levels of persecution that even here that we begin to experience are intended by Satan to shut the church up and to stop the church from pressing forward. But do you see what persecution actually does through the spirit-empowered church? Persecution becomes a platform. Persecution becomes a platform by which we are able to share with integrity and with strength and with, with, the, with the boldness of the Holy Spirit the truth about Jesus. So here he is being examined. And that is our opportunity as well to say what Peter has said. Well, let it be known. Let it be known. This is the essence of our mission. Letting it be known. Letting it be known who Jesus is. Letting it be known what Jesus has done. Is that not what they did? And letting it be known what Jesus is still doing. Namely, Jesus is still saving those who call on his name because he is the one name under heaven by which we might be saved. And so it's letting him be known in all of the ways that we have the opportunity to do that. It's it's being proud of Jesus in a world that seeks to bring us shame for following Jesus. It's living out exactly what Paul says in Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's going to work and living proud of Jesus. It's going to your high school and not allowing your high school to shame you out of following Jesus boldly and and daringly and courageously and passionately. It's it's living where you live and being proud to testify on Jesus' behalf. It's letting it be known how good Jesus is and how wonderful Jesus has been to you and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is still doing for them today. You see, if you think about it, In this verse 12 where we're thinking about the exclusivity of the gospel. That there is salvation in no one else. That there, you can't uh, follow the way of karma and find salvation. You can't follow the way of Muhammad and and find salvation. You can't follow your own desires and your own own good ideas and your own common sense and and find salvation. There's only one way, Jesus. And if we believe that, embedded within that is a responsibility. That if we believe there is no one else, there is a responsibility that is embedded within that reality. And the the responsibility is, is that if I know, if I know the one name by which men and women and boys and girls can come to faith, I have to go and share that name with all of those who don't know. I have the responsibility to let it be known to all of the people that don't know, in all of the places that don't know. I have the responsibility embedded within the charge that has been handed over to me, the good news that I have received, to go and to share the glory of Jesus wherever I go. Can you imagine as a parent having a teenage daughter or a teenage son and you're watching them destroy their lives and they're making decisions and you you have been down that path and you already know where it leads and you already know where it, what, what hardship follows and you already know how, how the tears that are to come and you already know the, the anger that is to come and the frustration that is to come and the scars that are to follow. Can you imagine having a teenager like that in your house and having the knowledge that you have and not being willing to share it with them? Can you imagine? You know what you would call that? You would call that unloving parenting irresponsible parenting, absent parenting. Because you know the truth. You know the way. You know how to spare them heartache. You know how to spare them pain. Can you imagine having the cure to the pandemic that we're in the midst of right now? 
And, and in an instant, you could help to reset the economy and, and cause people to stop dying and allow people to come out of isolation. Can you imagine having the cure and then sitting on it? What would we say that? We'd say there's no greater lack of love for your fellow brother or sister than that. We would say that you are literally the worst humanitarian that there could be. Oh, brothers and sisters, embedded within this is a much greater responsibility than either of those. We have the way that men and women can discover their real identity. We have the way that men and women can discover real hope. We have the way that boys and girls can, can stop trying to find their answer at the end of every date and in the bed of every lover and can actually find something that is substantial for them. We have Jesus. The name under which is the only name by which they can be saved. By one who... You don't have to earn your identity, but your identity is freely given. We have the name, man. We have the name. So Paul would say what we have to do is we have to let it be known. We have to go and we have to let it be known. This is, finishes this thought from Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is Paul saying, how is it that we could know of such a need, have such a treasure, and not take it, not be goers, not be missionaries, whoever we are, wherever we go, for the glory of Jesus, to let it be known who he is and what he's done and what he's still doing today. See, we have to go and we have to let it be known in those places where it's never been known. We have a responsibility to do that. Did you know that right now there are 3.23 billion, with a B, billion people around the world who live among a people group that is less than 2% Christian? Many of those peoples have not a single Christian witness living among them. Many of them do not have the Bible translated in their own language. That's more than 41% of the world's population. Did you know that if you added all of the population of North America and South America together, you would not reach the amount of lostness that is in China alone? Brothers and sisters, how can we just sit here and not go? How can we not go? How can we not weep? How can we not pray? How can we not let it be known that there is a name? There is a name. There is one. And you come to him and you will never be cast out. You come to him and he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. We have to go there and let it be known among those who have never known. And we have to go and let it be known among those who think they know. This is more subtle. But it's critical, brothers and sisters. We have partnerships in, in Utah. And you know what? Utah believes that it's reached. It believes it's the most reached state in the union. I had an opportunity to, to witness to, a, to a, a Mormon friend uh, several months ago. And you know what I was actually able to get him to say? I was actually able to get him to say that he believed that salvation was only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what we came to the realization of is that he meant something different by grace, something different by faith, and something different by Jesus. 
He thinks he has the gospel, but he doesn't have the gospel. And we have to go and penetrate the darkness, man. I think about, I think about uh, uh, Mexico. Catholicism is running rampant, and they think they have the gospel. He said they're adding works to faith. And saying you have to do good enough and be good enough, make yourself worthy, and have Jesus. And that's not the gospel. It's an assault on the gospel. And it oppresses people and brings them into slavery. We have to go, and we have to penetrate the darkness. I think about Swaziland. Swaziland, the prosperity gospel is running rampant there. It is, it is the gospel. It is uh, a wolf clothed in sheep's clothing with the appearance of the gospel, but lacking all of the power of the gospel in the name of, the G- of Jesus, but looking nothing like Jesus. And we have to go and we have to penetrate the, the darkness there. But you know, even more than that, I think about right here where we live. Right here where we live. Right here where we live, people think they know Jesus. They think they know the whole spill. They'll roll their eyes when you begin to talk about it. They've been baptized, they've been in churches. But what they have is an imposter. What they have is something that doesn't even change your life. What they have is some kind of moralism mixed with nationalism, mixed with political parties. And it's really a disgusting perversion of the reality. But we have the truth. We have the truth, a real identity, real joy, the real real pursuit. We have to make it known. We have to make it known. Right now, how are you letting it be known who Jesus is in your life? Are you going? Are you going? We have someone here. Lynn, if you would go ahead and join me on stage this morning. We have someone here, and I know it would embarrass her for me to frame her up this way, um, but she is letting him be known, and she's answered that call. And, and Lynn, one of the things that I'm so excited about is that you're just like us. You're, you're one of us. You grew up in Georgia, not far from here, just across the state line there. Um, so we can't look at you and think, wow, you know, you came from this really, you came from where we are. You, you, you're, you're one of us, and... Um, and I'm such so honored to have you here with us today, and I'm so thankful to have you here with us. So, so Lynn, to give you just, I, I can't give you a lot of background, and you'll notice that she's sitting kind of in the dark. We're, we're not trying to, to be shady or anything like that, um, but where she's serving, we can't publicize that over, over social media, and so we're, we're kind of keeping her, her identity concealed here a bit. But uh, Lynn is serving in the Horn of Africa with the International Mission Board, And the Lord is using her to do great works for his glory. And the Lord is doing and showing up in some really remarkable ways. And so, Lim, I want us to hear a little bit about your story. So how was it that the Lord moved you, a Georgia girl, one of us, how did he move you from the pew of your church to the mission field where you currently serve? So I became a Christian when I was a little girl. And almost as soon as... um, 
God saved me, he began to ignite a flame for the nations. He opened my eyes to people who were different than me, um, to internationals, um, as a little girl. And so it began sort of with salvation. But then I had the blessing of um, godly parents who modeled it very well of what it means to live a mission. So I had parents who studied the Bible, um, helped us as children learn how to study the Bible. They brought us on trips to New England as a family and did mission work with churches that were underprivileged in that area of America. And I saw it modeled well there. I saw it, um, my youth minister growing up brought us to New England again on mission trips. And um, through my childhood and growing up, it just solidified this isn't enough, I need to go. So I began to read books about missionaries. Lottie Moon became, um, became my role model, and I longed to go somewhere. And so the opportunity came to go to China, and I went to China where Lottie Moon served, and that just um, ignited the flame even more, and I knew that's what I, what I wanted to do with my life. Um, my timing was not God's timing, and so it took a while to get overseas, but even in that journey of um, beginning to do all the things that I need to do to go, um, he was putting people in my life that I would um, one day go and serve. And so looking back, nothing was wasted. The waiting years were not wasted, and he brought me to the Horn of Africa, and it's been a joy. Mm. Praise the Lord. Man, that's amazing. That's awesome. So, Lynn, I know in my ministry, there's usually always something I'm encouraged by, and there's always something I'm discouraged by, right? It's, it's, it's ministry in the real world. Could you maybe share with us the things that God's doing right where you are that you're just especially excited about, and maybe also share with us some of the concerns that you have? So I just came off of four years of serving overseas, and I'm beginning my second term. And so there are a lot of unknowns, but God gave me um, a new verse for this sort of season of my time over there. And it's found in Isaiah 43:19. It says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And right now... Um, there's so many unknowns, but it, is, it has been incredible to see how God has been faithful and how he has um, made the impossible come to be. Things that I thought were too big for him to accomplish, he has done. And so I'm so excited to see how he is going to make streams in the wilderness and that I get to be a part of it is such a joy. At the same time, um, I um, left quite suddenly in March to come to America due to an injury and COVID. And since I've been gone, I have, um, Satan's been very busy. He has um, attacked my household staff um, with some dissension with my um, language teacher who was my best friend and a national partner. And um, my guard got sick and his kidney started to fail. He's a pastor, brother in Christ. And then there was a war that started, and it um, sort of fueled from where I was in my city. And so since I've been there, there's been bombs, there's been destruction, there's been deaths. And so there's a concern that when I do go back, what will I see? But at the same time, God is in that. And like you said, persecution 
It's not, um, it's not something to be afraid of. I have seen over and over again that when Satan's busy and when he's doing something, God's at work too. Mm-hmm. And he's opening doors that we would never um, dream could be opened. And so I'm so excited to see that even though I'm concerned for the lives that might have been lost and my friends that might not be there when I go back, um, there's going to be so much to do and there's so many lives that need to hear the gospel. Have you been able to communicate pretty regularly with your friends there? The communication has been cut off since November. Mm. I know that that probably, your heart, that's probably been the hardest thing, hasn't it? So what encouragement, Lynn, might you give to a Christian living in the South that they might live on mission? So I would say um, every big change begins in prayer. So if God is stirring in your heart, I need to do more, begin to pray and ask God um, what obstacles might be in my way, what um, conveniences might I be leaning on that is keeping me from being obedient in this area. Um, We're all called to be missionaries. He called me to go overseas, but we're all missionaries. So once you've prayed, ask God to reveal who is in your path that needs to hear about him. Um, They are all around us, guys. They're working with you. They go to your school. They're your neighbors. And so ask him to give you opportunities to be a light where you are. And then make it broader. Start to look for people who are different than you, who speak a different language, who come from different countries, and invite them into your life. Um, I, I've served internationals for a long time, and it was appalling to me that people um, from overseas have lived in America for decades and have never been invited to an American holiday or eaten a southern meal. So invite them into your homes. That might be the beginning of deep friendship that can lead to the gospel. And then I would also say um, support missionaries overseas. One of the biggest lies that Satan sort of screamed at me when I was serving um, this past four years was that I was forgotten. Um, I battled that constantly. So it means the world to us to hear from you guys. So um, if God has given you a part of the world that you're interested in, look for missionaries that serve there and reach out to them. Get on their newsletters, um, call them up, tell them that you love them and appreciate them, encourage them. They need encouraging. They need to be reminded of the gospel because it's hard, guys. And then um, the final thing is... um, Uh, Well, one other thing about that, when I came back here, I only had a backpack and a carry-on luggage because I left so suddenly. I didn't say any goodbyes. It was hard. Mm -hmm. And I came to my sister's house and stayed in their trailer to quarantine, had nothing. Iron City let me into your clothes closet and gave me clothes. So when missionaries come back to the States, look out for them and take care of them because sometimes they're coming very broken and they need um, love. Um, But the final thing is go. If you get the opportunity to go, go on a trip. You never know how God will use that to encourage the missionaries that you're working alongside, but he might be beginning to work in you to lead you to go someday. Amen. Lynn, let me, you don't know us very well, but we have been praying. We've had your prayer card for some time in our congregation, and I want you to know that we love you. And we want to support you more, and we want to be able to be there for you, whatever that would look like. And so 
ordinarily what we do is whenever we're sending a team out or whenever we have a missionary here, we commission, we, we, we gather around them as a church and we pray for them. Obviously, we're not going to do that just that way this morning. But the way I want to close out our service today is I'm going to ask you if you'll come down front um, and then I'm going to have each person just raise their hand forward as though, and so you, you can imagine, you can feel there in spirit, right, as they gather around her. Um, and, and this morning, Lynn has brought some prayer cards. Some, we, don't, we don't have a lot of them. Um, so maybe just one per family. You don't, don't, you know, if you're, oh, you have more? Okay, so, so you know what? She says get as many as you need. Um, you're good to go. But we have prayer cards. Andrew's going to be down front to hand out those prayer cards for you. But come by and, and be a, just be an encouragement to Lynn. She's encouraged me this morning, and, and she's, she's challenged me. And, and I'm, I imagine it's been the same for you. I know that many of you this morning will want to worship the Lord through giving. And we work really hard in our church to make giving about mission make giving about mission. And so I, I believe that, that every single dollar that you give contributes to the Great Commission. I, I'm, I'm really convinced of that. But even above and beyond that, we give large percentages to the cooperative program that helps to fund international missions around the world. Uh, we just were able to meet our goal to a lot of you. I praise God for that. And then we have our missions budget, as you know, above and beyond that. So please just be mindful of those things and make an offering to the Lord that you can let it be known to the nations, the goodness of Jesus' name. So at this time, if everybody would, if you would just reach your hand forward and imagine yourself gathering as a hedge around uh, around Lynn, and we're going to pray for her this morning, and then you come up and you get to know her a little bit. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.